Well, let's get started. Okay. So this is our lectionary Bible study. And uh, we're looking at the Feast of All Saints. Uh, we'll go ahead and begin with the prayer, and then we'll talk more about the feast day. Let us pray. O Almighty God, who has knit together thine elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of thy Son, Christ our Lord, grant us grace so to follow thy blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those ineffable joys which thou hast prepared for those who unfeignedly love thee. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee, in the unity of the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world, or in glory everlasting. Amen. Amen. By the way, there's a couple of times in the 1979 prayer book where it says, in glory everlasting, maybe like two or three times. I have no idea why. Uh, there's no reason why it would, there's no like different original Latin prayer that necessitates a different translation into English. I think it's just this committee worked on that and that committee worked on the others and so you get some variations in the different translations. You mean the same prayer or in Well no, the ending is per omnia secula seculorum unto the ages of ages or worlds without end. Or, it's been a couple of different ways of rendering it. And the fact they use ages of ages, although it's in a new composition, in uh, one of the prayers in an order of worship for the evening. Um, and it might be somewhere else too. Uh, ages of Ages has been sort of more of a orthodox um, rendering because in the Eastern rites they come from the Greek rather than the Latin and it's aeons or ages is usually how it's rendered. One of the things you notice right off the bat is the theme of the communion of saints. So uh, God has knit us together in the one communion and fellowship, in one koinonia, um, bond, holy bond of fellowship. And it makes me think back to uh, teaching religion to fourth graders, and one of our exercises was uh, taking the, the we, we use the Apostles' Creed in the, in the little chapel service, you know. And so we were working on just getting to know the Bible and where are things and how to look up things and all that kind of stuff. Um, how to use an index or, or concordance, you know. And so like, oh, well, let's take our creed and uh, take each line and then look up a verse that relates to that line, you know. And uh, interestingly, almost without exception, when they got to communion of saints, they looked up verses about the Last Supper. <laughs> so they were thinking Holy Communion. Yeah. Um, but here, of course, it's, it's something different. Although not, of course, unrelated, because we are knit together in one fellowship by being joined to Christ, which is what Holy Communion is about. Communion with Christ puts us in communion with others who are in communion with Christ. Also, one of the things that's always been emphasized in the prayer book is following the examples of the saints. So, grant us grace to follow thy blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living. Um, and then the result is sharing in their joy and fellowship. So this coming Sunday, uh, most Anglican uh, churches, at least in North America, will be celebrating All Saints. Um, I don't know what the pattern is in other Anglican churches around the world. Um, I don't know what common worship is. Um, the older practice is that all Saints Day was just a day and you couldn't move it anywhere. And then for whatever reason, I don't know the origin of it um, because it, it wasn't in the Novus Ordo, the, the Roman Catholic new order of mass. Um, maybe it was something that they toyed with for a little while and, and then decided against, or it might be something that is done in, in some countries but not others. So you know, local bishops conferences were given authority to adjust things on the calendar in different places. So that's why you have, even in the United States, uh, most Roman Catholic parishes, they transfer um, ascension to the Sunday following, but not everywhere. So you gotta you know, look ahead and make sure what's going on at 
at the place that you're headed to on Sunday. So I don't know if there's any Roman Catholic parishes, uh, jurisdictions, bishops' conferences where they transfer to Sunday or not. But for whatever reason, uh, they decided to go with the idea in the 79 revision that you can, we're not going to eliminate the day, so you can still keep the day, but you can also observe it on the following Sunday. And I suppose that probably got started in the midst of draft rites and, you know, the green book and the zebra book and all that kind of stuff ahead of the new prayer book. So probably in the, in the mid-60s, uh, certainly by the early 70s, you have it becoming commonplace, the observance of All Saints on the following Sunday. It really seems to have just caught on. In fact, I know the Lutherans do it, at least the ELCA Lutherans do it. I think maybe the Methodists, but I'm not sure. And then just on um, Instagram the other day, I saw a post from First Baptist in Shreveport. They said, this coming Sunday is All Saints Sunday. Really? And, uh, you know, what uh, people have you known that have died that are, are you getting, giving thanks for and trying to emulate? You know? All Saints, but not all souls. Well, that's the interesting thing, of course, is that in, in, in the Protestant churches that, that do liturgical observances on, on their calendar, um, all souls might be on the Lutheran calendar, but that's about it. But even then, a lot of the All Souls attention kind of gets put over onto All Saints. So it kind of gets all mishmashed together. So you pray for the dead and All Souls Day? Well, all it, Saints Day. it comes to basically like, you know, who in your life did you love that has died and you want to, you know, think about them on this day and, and maybe follow their good examples and that sort of thing. And in addition to focusing on, you know, the big ones we read about in the Bible and hear about in church history and, and all the, you know, unknown martyrs uh, throughout the ages and around the world. And also, I think, a, a recognition that, you know, they're, the 20th century is really the age of martyrs. Um, I think that's part of it, too. Um, but it all kind of gets rolled into one. Well, let's look for a moment about the origin of this feast day, because it wasn't always around. So it, it dates back from about the 7th century in Rome, pretty early on, around 610. Uh, the Pope at that time, St. Bonabas IV, turned the Pantheon. And you know which one that is, the one with the dome with the opening in the middle, the oculus. And so the Pantheon was a pagan temple dedicated to all the gods. And so, you know, you go to the, the capital of the empire, and wherever you're from, they got your God back home in the Pantheon, too. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was a great kind of, you know, whoever came up with this was a genius, you know. It's kind of uniting all cultures in, into one rule and dominion. Um, and so, of course, by this time, paganism has, you know, long since uh, faded uh, in, in, terms, in terms of any strength and power. Uh, and so they whoever is in charge of this has control of the pagan temple and they give it to the church. And so the church uh, takes it and remakes it into a church. So it's all, of course, all, all the idols are removed and uh, exorcisms are performed and it's sort of cleansed of its former uh, use and turned into a church dedicated now to Mary and all the martyrs. So kind of the same similar type of idea of, you know, your holy ones, your heroes from all over the empire. Um, but now they are, instead of idols and false gods, uh, they are those who died in honor of the true God and sealed their testimony with their blood. So Blessed Mary and all the martyrs. And in fact, we find uh, this is very common in basically all religions and cultures when you conquer some land. Uh, you take their temples and you um, either destroy them and build your own on, on top of them or you turn them into your own worship space. So, for example, uh, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. The very famous, you know, if you see anything of any movie that goes to Istanbul, you'll see a background shot of that because that's the one thing it's renowned for, like the Eiffel Tower and 
in uh, Paris or something. There's and of course, in, in, excuse me, I thought you paused. There's a church in Rome that has seven distinct religions in it. They've uh, they've uh, excavated, and there's oh yeah, so it's one built on top of the other, mm -hmm. and yeah. it goes back to almost three, you know, three thousand years, and wow. they just kept going up and going up. And it's kind of spooky and fun to keep going down the steps and seeing each one, and it saves real estate. It does well, and and oftentimes, you know, when you have building projects, you're pulling the stones from ruins around there to build the new building. And so there's a lot of recycling that goes on. Uh, but with Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, uh, you have the big mother church of the empire there turned into a mosque. Yeah. And so that's been typical, especially with Christians and, and Muslims and uh, Muslims conquering Christian lands and turning their churches into mosques. But also back in um, the Holy Land, one of the reasons why they knew the spot of the crucifixion was that on top of it had been built a temple to Venus. So the, the goddess of love uh, was sort of like, you know, we're, we're putting our stamp on the place where you local pilgrims get excited about. So you, you know, we'll just ruin your day, basically. And, and that happened a lot. So the pagan idols were removed and they were also replaced with bones of martyrs from the Roman catacombs. Abbot Granger described it well in his masterpiece, The Liturgical Year, quote, when Rome had completed the conquest of the world, she dedicated to all the gods in token of her gratitude the Pantheon, the most durable monument of her power. But when she herself had been conquered by Christ and invested by him with the empire over souls, she withdrew her homage from vain idols and offered it to the martyrs. For they, praying for her as she slew them, had rendered her truly eternal." End quote. So just a wonderful, very, he's, he's, a, he's a great wordsmith, Abbot Granger. So of course people were aware that many uh, martyrs in that day of the early church uh, were persecuted in Rome and were not remembered. Um, there were far more martyrs than those that were famous for being martyrs. And uh, their kind of collective memory uh, was sacred to the Roman people. And so Granger says, after six centuries of persecution and destruction, the martyrs had the last word, and it was a word of blessing, a signal of grace for the great city, here too drunk with the blood of Christians. And so we remember them, all those heroic servants of Christ whose names were lost, but who still shine with the brilliance of Christ's light within them. And Jesus had said, of course, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So that is kind of the origin of this idea of all saints. We start with all martyrs, particularly those whose name we have lost. And then in 732, so not too long after that, Pope Gregory III dedicated an oratory that is a, a private chapel on November 1st at St. Peter's Basilica in honor of the Savior, his Blessed Mother, the Holy Apostles, all the Holy Martyrs, Confessors, and Perfect Just who repose throughout the world. So it was an interesting dedication. It was like, we're going to dedicate this chapel to everybody. You know, our Lord, Blessed Mother, all the Apostles, the Prophets, the Martyrs, Confessors, that is, saints who weren't martyrs, and everybody else. And so that Oftentimes, a, a dedication of an important, prominent church um, was, you know, celebrated year after year, and because it was so prominent, it became celebrated far and wide, and so that's what you have basically here. Um, so May 13th was, uh, I, I suppose it was the day of the commemoration of the dedication of the Pantheon as the new church for all the martyrs, but November 1st, that one kind of overtook it in terms of popularity and prominence. And so that's the one that ended up kind of spreading far and wide more than the martyrs. So that's how we get All Saints on November 1st. Is it, you remember Halloween? I remember. remember Halloween? It was yesterday. Yeah. 
The day before yesterday. Well, yeah, they 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 go together, and it's yeah. it's similar also to the way that um, different feast days over time get kind of pulled apart in these commemorations. So the at first you have Epiphany, and it's the manifestation of Christ to the world, and then you peel off a part of the Nativity, and you celebrate that, and then you peel off part of the Baptism, and so Epiphany, which was a lot more stuff all in one, in the Western Church gets kind of segregated out into different events. And so a similar thing with um, All Saints is that... Uh, well, and see, Hallows is, is a word for saints. Yeah. So All Hallows even is the night before the All Saints. So Halloween is the vigil or the eve of All Saints or All Hallows. And of course, big prominent feast days all had their eves or vigils or fasting days. Um, and somebody pointed out that in the 1962 Missal, they did away with um, the Vigil of All Saints, which really surprised me. But um, that was uh, Pope John the 23rd. Um, so that was the last edition of the old Roman Missal that was put out in 1962. And they had made some changes, not a whole lot, but they added Joseph to the canon, which is the big one. And then they trimmed away a couple of um, vigils, I guess, and maybe some octaves. I'm not quite sure. Not, not a whole lot. But it used to be that vigils of big feasts were a big thing. And there's no reason why you couldn't do that. They've just kind of dropped off the calendar over the years. And of course, we've commemorated all saints, all the big martyrs. But what about kind of the rest of us? You know, the ones who maybe weren't so hot and uh, didn't set such a good example, but we're still Christians and still believed and we're still saved. Um, so all souls became a day to pray for all the faithful departed. And so just like you would have a, a feast day in honor of a saint year after year, you would have a requiem in honor of you know, all the rest of us year after year. And uh, so all souls has been uh, wonderful, meaningful to me. Hmm? Mm -hmm. who had perished as though they had not, they had not lived. Yep. They've been... I've always found that evocative. They've been forgotten by the masses, but never by the Lord. And when we're joined to the Lord in communion with Him, we remember all those that we don't know, but He knows. So our first lesson is from uh, the book called Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, so it's part of the Apocrypha of the Old Testament. Uh, remember, those books are the Greek books that are not in Hebrew, although we think most of them um, have a Hebrew original. We found bits and pieces and scraps. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, really kind of helped us enlighten our understanding about that, but they were far more widespread, and they probably have a Hebrew original, most of them. But basically, they get preserved in Greek because the Greek Bible becomes very successful, the Greek translation of the Septuagint, it becomes kind of the King James Version of that era. You know, it's used everywhere. But the Jews will still use Hebrew scriptures in their worship. Um, so they won't read Greek in the synagogue, they'll read Hebrew. Um, but as far as what you have at home, if you're lucky enough and wealthy enough to have a set of scrolls for your own, uh, you'll have the Greek, because that's what people read. And this is a book that's part of the wisdom literature. Um, so there's a lot of proverbs and poems and uh, nuggets of wisdom sayings in there. It's, it's a lot more piecemeal than the book called The Wisdom or Wisdom of Solomon. That's a little bit more narrative, a little bit more cohesive. This is a lot more kind of bits and scraps and pieces. So you get some long bits and you get some short bits. But it, it starts to wrap up. It ends in, I think, chapter 51 or something. Yeah, 51. So starting with chapter 44, uh, it goes into this kind of extended poem celebrating the praises of the ancestors and the great heroes of the faith and that kind of thing. So that's where we pick up our 
reading is from the beginning of that great poem, which is worth reading it in its entirety. So it's chapter 44 um, through 51. So we get, um, for example, chapter 45, the praise of Moses, Aaron, and Phineas. We all forget about Phineas. You know, who's Phineas? Well, that's another one of the priests in that era, and he was uh, a great hero, and I, I even forget what it was. He, he killed somebody um, and uh, as, as a sort of a security guard type of role. Um, he avenges someone who was engaged in idolatry or something like that, or trying to bring idols into the temple. I forget. And then you get a chapter on Joshua and uh, Caleb and uh, Nathan and David and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha and so on. So it kind of goes through chronologically in the Old Testament, singing the praises of various heroes. But it begins with this wonderful um, idea of we're going to praise everybody, including those we have forgotten, but God has not forgotten. So Ecclesiasticus or Sirach chapter 44, beginning in verse 1 through verse 10, then we skip 11 and 12 and pick up with 13 and 14. Let us now praise famous men and our fathers in their generations. The Lord apportioned to them great glory, his majesty from the beginning. There were those who ruled in their kingdoms and were men renowned for their power, giving counsel by their understanding and proclaiming prophecies. Leaders of the people in their deliberations and an understanding of learning for the peoples wise in their words of instruction, those who composed musical tunes and set forth verses in writing, rich men furnished with resources, living peaceably in their habitations. All these were honored in their generations and were the glory of their times. There are some of them who have left a name so that men declare their praise, and there are some who have no memorial, who have perished as though they had not lived. They have become as though they had not been born, and so have their children after them. But these were men of mercy, whose righteous deeds have not been forgotten. Their prosperity will remain with their descendants, and their inheritance to their children's children. Their descendants shall stand by the covenants, their children also for their sake. Their posterity will continue forever, and their glory will not be blotted out. Their bodies were buried in peace, and their name lives to all generations. So a nice selection. Uh, it's a good good choice. Let me turn to, uh, it's interesting that the Roman Catholic lectionary uh, doesn't have this selection. Um, it begins with Revelation 7, which is our epistle reading. And then, so they use that for the Old Testament slot. And they use a different psalm. I don't know why. Psalm 24 instead. And then for the epistle slot, uh, they use 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Um, and I'm not sure what that passage is. Uh, it talks about being like Jesus. Does that make sense? Of course, it's a good selection. But it's interesting the divergence of um, selections on that mark. He writes... Um, in terms of talking about the big theme of the feast and its place in the church year, this feast marks a transition from the earlier part of the post-Pentecost season, with its emphasis on growth and grace, to the last Sundays of the church year, which emphasize shifts to the last things and the final consummation of history. And of course, also November is devotionally the, the month for the Holy Souls, uh, thinking about the afterlife, and so we kind of switch gears a little bit, have a transition to focusing more on the things to come, life after death, and so on, whereas the summertime was all about kind of discipleship and learning how to uh, follow Christ and be Christ-like and so on. All right, any other thoughts about Ecclesiasticus? Let me see, I have anything else in my notes about that. A-G-E-E. A-G-E-E. 
Oh, aging. Okay. Well, let's turn to uh, the psalm, which is Psalm 149. And much like uh, the, the final chapters in Ecclesiasticus, the final chapters or final psalms in the Psalter uh, are all praise psalms, great hymns of praise. Um, and so it's a very fitting selection for a great festival day like All Saints, 149. Looking at what uh, Father Reardon has to say about this passage or about this psalm, the exaltation of the saints and the victory of Christ, their evangelical struggle for the gospel and the ultimate judgment of the world are the themes of Psalm 149. This is a psalm of triumph in warfare, specifically that warfare described in Ephesians 6, the battle against the principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. As we've had occasion to observe often in the Psalms, combat and invocation, battle and blessing are inseparable in the, in the evangelical life. Therefore, we may take this, this same sixth chapter of Ephesians as a true warfare passage to help us penetrate the meaning of Psalm 149. To pray this Psalm properly, we must be numbered among the warriors that it, portray, that it portrays. The saints exult in glory they rejoice in their quarters. The exaltations of God are in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hand. The latter blade, so, describes, so described, is, of course, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is part of that whole armor of God, which the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to put on so we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, to be able to, be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So this is all about fighting the good fight of the faith. So with that in mind, Psalm 149. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Let the congregation of saints praise him. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. And let the children of Zion be joyful in their kings, in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with tabret and harp. For the Lord hath pleasure in his people and helpeth the meek-hearted. Let the saints be joyful with glory. Let them rejoice in their beds. Let the praises of God be in their mouth, and a two-edged sword in their hands, to be avenged of the nations, and to rebuke the, the peoples, to bind their kings in chains, and their nobles with links of iron, to execute judgment upon them, as it is written, Such honor have all his saints. And I like how it wraps up there with the, the idea that um, how lucky you are to be one of those chosen God's elect who are to go out there and fight the battle of the faith for him. Such honor have all his saints to take, to take territory, to take captives. This is all metaphorically speaking, of course. Um, but, you know, that's in the struggle of cultures, that's always a big thing, taking territory. Um, in fact, that's exactly what we've seen uh, in recent years with the explosion of uh, all kinds of um, morally revisionist type of things, you know, taking ground, taking marriage, you know, that's not your thing to define, that's, that's our thing to define. Um, taking ground in schools, you know, having um, a drag... Uh, children's story time, you know, where a drag queen comes in and reads, you know, you're taking ground of the school, you're, you're claiming territory. So that's basically what we see here, is that kind of cultural war going on, where you take territory, you take ground. And so here, it's, it's, it's all about that, you know, um, such honor have his saints, they get, they get to go out there and take territory and claim things for the Lord and and say, this belongs to God. This is a holy place. This is a civilized place uh, where God is honored and, and good morals are upheld and so on. To bind their kings in chains. Um, what would that mean metaphorically? I don't know. To, to disarm someone in argument about uh, some of these contentious issues. Uh, to bind their nobles with links of iron. To make it so that they they can't cause any further damage um, because they've lost credibility or they've lost 
the impact of their argument or something like that. So this is definitely a psalm for our time, but you might say a psalm for every time. And if we are celebrating the saints who have gone before us and we want to emulate them, then it's our role to go on and, like they did, fight the good fight of the faith and make public our testimony that Jesus is Lord and to seal that testimony with our blood, as so many of them did. Well, let's look at the um, um, epistle reading from Revelation. So the vision of heaven is proclaimed in the book of Revelation, speaks of God's care for the faithful in the age to come. Prior to the catastrophic end of human history, all of God's holy ones in the world must be sealed in order to protect them in the coming affliction. And this is um, basically Paul talks about this kind of mystery of our redemption and when it comes to the relationship of the Jews, God's chosen people to him. And this is something that's perplexed and runs some people off course. Uh, so you have, I don't know if it has really a name, but you have this fairly new, I think, idea that the Jews would be sort of handled separately from the church, um, that, they, that their own covenant is still a going thing that will resolve itself track A, and then the church is sort of track B. Um, and that may come out of uh, kind of end time speculation and you know how does this all fit together and now you have a, a state of Israel again whereas you didn't have that for so many centuries. Um, so as far as I'm aware I, I think it tends to blossom with that era. Um, the main famous person who's connected with this idea is um, John Hagee down in San Antonio. I don't know if he's still preaching or if he's retired now. He's, he's getting on up there if he hadn't retired, but um, he's kind of renowned for this. He wrote several books uh, relating this idea. Um, but that's not what we find, of course, in Paul, and that's not what we find in Revelation. But what Paul does talk about is that God hasn't abandoned his chosen people. They're still chosen, and then there's this mystery of God's plan, which is greater than our, our ideas, about how they'll come in at the end. So there'll be a great conversion among the Jews at the end. And so that's what we find described here in Revelation, the sealing of converts from each tribe. Basically, the sealing is both about protection and also about bringing them into the fold. So what do we find in confirmation, which is basically an extension of the baptismal ritual. After baptism we find a sealing. In confirmation we find a sealing. So this is a reference to them coming into the church, being sealed. They're in large generic numbers, so it doesn't lend itself to the idea that these are uh, literal figures, but rather that they are symbolic numbers. A grand total from each tribe, uh, 12,000 from 12 tribes, and thus you get 144,000. Now what is it, the, is it the Seventh-day Adventist or the Jehovah's Witness? Jehovah's Witness? Yeah, that put a big emphasis on the 144,000 and you've got to be a part of the 144,000. The, the odd thing about that is, is that this passage doesn't say anything about, you know, the, the elect or the righteous are limited to 144,000 people. It just talks about this grand number coming in from the Jews and then it turns and looks and there's a, a great multitude beyond that that no one could number. So, you know, so the saved are multiple, multiple, you know, um, far beyond 144,000. When I was in college, I had a Jehovah's Witnesses come and they were talking. I brought it, but they said the 144,000. I said, well, I figured they're full now. I can just go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, part, that's how you make it work is that nobody knows. Who's a part of the 144,000? <laughs> it's like that, I heard a joke the other day. It's like, there's a black sheep in every family. And if you don't know who the black sheep is in your family, guess what? <laughs> <You're> <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we got so many candidates in my family. 
Um, and, and there must be, I'm not really familiar with Jehovah's Witness that much, but there must be among them the idea of being the true Jews, the true Israelites. And you find that among some groups. Uh, I know it's prominent with the Mormons, although they don't talk a whole lot about it. But what you, what you do find is, is they refer to non-Mormons as Gentiles. And so I, I mentioned that before, I think. This, Utah is the only place in the world where Jews will be referred to as Gentiles yeah. <laughs> by people. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's a literal thing, although I think uh, some of the early Mormon apostles did talk about a kind of a supernatural replacing of the blood with Jewish blood um, when you convert and are baptized. But it's more of a metaphorical thing, I think, uh, these days. But I would imagine that the Jehovah's Witness have some kind of doctrine along those lines of being the, the true Jews, the true Israel. And that's not too far off um, from the Christian perspective that the, the church is the true Israel or the renewed Israel or something like that. It doesn't really spend a whole lot of ink on that idea in the New Testament, but it's alluded to here and there. And it's part of the outlook that Paul has. But one of the things he talks about extensively in Romans is this idea that God has not abandoned his chosen people, the Jews. They're still a part of the plan. They're going to come in at the end. Don't worry about it. It's, that's on God, and he's doing his thing, and we, we don't necessarily understand it, but he's, he's working the situation. <laughs> so let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 7. So I wonder if this is still in the... We must have just ended the letters to the churches. Where does that stop here? No, that's a bit earlier. So that ends in chapter 3. 1, 2, and 3 are the letters to the seven churches. And then in chapter 4, we really begin the vision that we're more... Uh, that we think of when we talk about Revelation. So this is a few chapters in after that. So the vision begins in chapter 4 of the heavenly worship. Uh, a scroll is given to the Lamb. He's able to break the seals. And then this is part of the uh, unfolding of the prophecy as the seals are broken, I suppose. So Revelation 7, beginning in verse 2, 2 through 4, and then we skip 9 through 17. I saw another angel ascend from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels, who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, a hundred and forty-four thousand sealed, out of every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then those ones that we skip are... Basically, the enumeration, you know, 12,000 sealed out of the tribe of Dan, and 12,000 of the tribe of Asher, and 12,000 of the tribe of Judah, and so on. So we skip that part. We pick up verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no man could number, from every nation, and from all tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood round the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and whence have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night within his temple. And he who sits upon the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So just a beautiful passage, a marvelous, poetic kind of passage. 
And it tells us um, a couple of things, like we mentioned before. It tells us about the inclusion of the Jews at the end. It tells us about a time of great tribulation. Um, so, for example, and I never heard anybody talk about the connection here. Um, and I didn't really even think about it until just now. But the idea of the rapture of the church, uh, which is particularly suited to um, American Christians who are kind of sheltered from real tribulation. And the idea is that when great tribulation comes along, God will pull his church out of the world, and so the, his people won't suffer through the great tribulation. Or some people say it'll be halfway through rather than at the beginning. But here, what do you find? You find a bunch of martyrs being added to the church who got martyred during the Great Tribulation. So the, those who, who, who preach the rapture say, well, yeah, but God will take his church out of the world and then you'll have new converts who aren't, aren't converted until everybody leaves. And then they're like, where are all the Christians? They must have been right. And so their, their heart has changed, and they become the martyrs at this point. But to me, that's just kind of a, a forced, well, the whole idea of the rapture is kind of forced to begin with. Anyway, well, that's an back, aside. The back half, kind of the bottom half of this reading, wasn't that a comment of a, of a martyr in the old days? Probably, yeah. Wasn't it makes sense. I used to read this a lot. Well, I've, uh, we've definitely, we've definitely read you probably get it there. You probably get it in a comment of martyrs. In the old black uh, lesser feasts and fasts or something. Oh, oh. I oh, think it was a, maybe a morning office or a mass office or something like that. And some of the things stylistically you notice is they're wearing white robes. And so how do their robes get white? Um, they were purified in the blood of the Lamb. And so the white robes of converts are albs, basically. Uh, so you're baptized and you're clothed um, in a white robe, representing the, the purity of Christ uh, and His righteousness. And so that's how the robe got white, is in the blood of the Lamb. And that harkens back to, I think it was last Sunday, we had the reading from Isaiah about, uh, though your sins be scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Uh, they'll be white like wool. And also they're holding palm branches in their hands. Um, now I don't know the origin of the connection between palm branches and martyrdom, but that's always a sign of martyrs. And so you, when you see a you know, great mosaic or, or fresco or something like that, and you see people holding palm branches, that means they're a martyr. So that, that symbolism just stuck. Perhaps it relates back to Palm Sunday, and those who hail Jesus follow him in taking up their cross. That would make sense. Father, young Father Jordan, did, doesn't he tell the story of, say something like, show me your songs, your palms, and they all <laughs> I don't know. No. I haven't heard that. <laughs> is that what Palm Sunday is? <laughs> I don't remember where it came from. Be careful how people put up their... Put up their palms, you know. <laughs> I had this uh, joke about um, at St. Michael's Conference, and, and you know a lot of other places do this too. You know, they encourage people to make their confessions, and you can write it on a piece of paper, and then when you're done, you get to burn it. You know, it's like, well, well let, let's do this. Let's uh, let's let's take those and and we'll nail them to a, a cross, and then we'll we'll all put on our white albs, our, our white robes, and we'll gather around the cross, and then we'll burn. We'll light up this cross, and, and, and all surrounding in our white robes, and then, and then we can lift up our hands and salute the cross. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't that be wonderful? And then we'll put pointy hats. Yeah, pointy hats on. Yeah. Oh, I get Kukot's plan. I remember yes, I the, my uh, chaplain in college, he was getting vested uh, for our Wednesday Eucharist and he had one of those kind of cassock alb things from Almy that got the big hood on it it's like a pointed hood <laughs> so his hood was up for a while and his wife said put that down you look like a Klansman 
Let's see. Anything else to note about this passage from Revelation? It's a wonderful line at the end. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So a great contrast between what they've been through before, the great tribulation and the suffering, and then now the reward and the comfort and uh, also the uh, communion. Whereas before they were isolated being torn apart and killed. Now they're with the Lamb and with their comrades. That's not a bad end, ending for just the personal funeral. Mm-hmm. That might be one of the selections that can be chosen. I, don't I ask, is there a typo in uh, verse 15? Therefore, are they before the throne of God? Yeah, I think that should be, therefore they are before the throne of God. Yeah. Although it, it it could be just an old old older fashioned formulation. Therefore, are they the, before the throne of God? So I'll I'll, I'll check on that. It kind of works either way, but the more modern way of saying it would be, therefore, they are before the throne of God. And I remember asking a pastor when I was a kid, because I noticed people would, you know, the name above every name, even Jesus Christ the Lord. Like, why does it say even? You know, because it makes it sound in modern English like it, you're talking about somebody else. It's like, no, that's just that's just kind of the King James way of saying it. it it's talking about Jesus. It's a, I don't know what that term is, not superlative, but it's, it's there for emphasis. So the gospel for today is um, Matthew's um, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, in the vigil, um, which they did away with in the 1962 Missal, uh, had kind of parallel readings and so it had Luke's Sermon on the Plain, um, Blessings and Woes and um, in the 79 prayer book they they took those set of readings and made them alternates so if you didn't want to do the same ones year after year you could kind of go back and forth. Um, I think in the 2019 they did away with the alternates and they just have the main set of readings. But of course Matthew's is far more famous than Luke's version um, but there's a lot of overlap. As, as far as the Beatitudes, what are the Beatitudes? Well, those are the attitudes you need to be at. Oh, Lord. <laughs> who said that? I don't know. You did. The question is, who said it the first time? Because everybody said it at some point. That'd be a good bunker sticker. <laughs> I, I remember hearing a story about some old priest who loved, he, he always wanted people to ask him, what are the Beatitudes? Because he wanted to give that answer. They're the attitudes you need to be at. <laughs> I've never heard that. I've never heard that either. Well, of, and, and, and the word Beatitude means happiness, fulfillment. Um, so in moral theology, we talk about the, the end goal of human existence is Beatitude. Uh, happiness and fulfillment in God, um, living out our purpose. But it, it's related to the word for, for happiness, for blessing. Um, in Barclay's commentary, uh, he on, on each beatitude, he, he gives it a different title. So it's like the bliss of. So the bliss of, let me see. The supreme bliss, the bliss of the destitute, that is blessed are the poor, the bliss of the broken heart, the bliss of the God-controlled life, the bliss of the starving spirit, the bliss of perfect sympathy, bless of the merciful, the bliss of the clean heart, the bliss of bringing men together, peacemakers, the bliss of suffering for Christ, blessed are the persecuted. And so he says, the greatness of the Beatitudes is that they're not wistful glimpses of some future be beauty. They are not even golden promises of some distant glory. They are triumphant shouts of bliss for permanent joy that nothing in the world can ever take away. All right, so 
And this is how he begins the Sermon on the Mount, which continues on for, I think, a couple of chapters. Let's see. So it begins with chapter 5, and then chapter 6, chapter 7. So it ends in chapter 7. And after the Beatitudes, he goes on to talk about your salt and your light. I'm not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. And then teaches about basically commenting on Old Testament rules and regulations and making them more intense. So you've heard that it was said, whoever is angry, but I say, um, whoever kills, Oh, sorry. You've heard that it was said, whoever committed murder, but I say to you, whoever's angry without a cause already commits murder, and so on. All right, well, Matthew 5, verse 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. So a marvelous passage. Uh, he begins by going up on the mountain. Matthew's gospel seems to be um, written with a Jewish audience in mind. There's a lot of allusions and callbacks to Moses. So Jesus is like the new Moses. The gospel is like the new law, the new Torah. Um, some scholars look at the organization of the book and they see it sort of laid out in five groups and they say, well, this is kind of like the five books of the Torah. So there's kind of a lot of overlap, a lot of callback. So he goes up on the mountain and like a new Sinai, the new Moses gives his commandments, his 10 commandments as it were. And they, in this case, there are Beatitudes. Uh, words of blessedness about those who keep God's will and God's law. Um, he goes up on the mountain, he sits down, so this is the posture of teaching. So a teacher, a rabbi, um, would always sit down to teach. Um, and it was a custom in the early church that um, the bishop would sit to teach. Uh, so that's where his throne became prominent because if you're thinking about his throne which represents his authority to teach he is usually sitting on the throne when he's teaching sort of like how the crown uh, just signifies the authority of the king he puts on the crown when he does something official like inaugurating laws or something Yeah. And we, put, we brought the chair out to the center. I've seen Bishop Ackerman do that before, and who else would, you know? But who else would? That wasn't the incarnation, was it? Well, they pulled the chair out and he sat down on the floor. Oh, no. I was there for that. <laughs> and, um, of course, you see, you see the Pope do it uh, time to time. Um, Well, that's where you get the term ex cathedra. You know, he's teaching officially as his role. You know, when the Padre died, he came up uh, to Williger. Put his church yeah. on the altar. I got it. Well, yeah, Bishop Wilbur always did that before he celebrated mass. Was put his closer on the altar. Yeah. Oh, we, oh, we, oh, you're talking about the St. Michael's service at Fort Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I think he did. 
So Jesus, like a new Moses on the mountain, sits down to teach. And then it says his disciples came to him. So there's kind of a, a segregation of the crowd. So it's not just a, a, a mixed crowd of a lot of different people. His disciples draw near to, to hear what he has to say. Um, so we could, we could go into this with the presupposition that all of the things that follow in the Sermon on the Mount are really directed toward the flock. He's preaching to the choir as it were. So he's preaching to the faithful, those who are seeking God, those who are wanting to learn and follow and obey and so on. And he paints, he begins his whole Sermon on the Mount by sort of painting a picture of what godly people look like. What do the saints of God look like? And he talks about them being called blessed. And it's interesting that we use that term blessed um, as a title for a saint. And so you say, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary or, you know, Blessed Paul the Apostle is basically this, the equivalent of saying Saint Paul, Saint Mary. It means Holy One. It means Fulfilled One. Those are kind of overlapping terms. Oh, one of the things also we should keep in mind when looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is from Matthew, seems to be directed with a Jewish audience in mind is that he uses the term here, kingdom of heaven. And in a sense, that's a little bit unfortunate because it kind of throws us um, into thinking of the afterlife, you know, but that's not necessarily what he's getting at. So what you find is, is that in Matthew's gospel, he, we have the term kingdom of heaven, whereas in the other gospels, we have the term kingdom of God. And what that is, is that is, that's a, I guess you call it a Jewishism, um, where you kind of avoid mentioning God. Of course, you don't use God's name, but a lot of times you'll find even avoiding a mention of G-O-D by other euphemisms. So instead of saying kingdom of God, say kingdom of heaven. Even sometimes if you see a, a, a very devout Jew who writes something in a book, or a newspaper, column, or whatever, and they'll mention God, it'll be like G. Uh, asterisk D, just like you know, in, in print where you would disguise a, a you know a bad word, or, you know, with uh, just symbols, you know. So it's kind of an interesting little thing there. It's, it's a sign of reverence. The, the unfortunate thing is, is that it when we hear that we we don't have that in mind, and so it kind of throws us into thinking. Well, he's just talking about heaven. He's just talking about the afterlife. He's not talking about living these things out in the here and the now. But that's exactly what he's talking about, living, thing, living these things out in the here and the now. I mean, if you just apply your, your mind a little bit, you can kind of figure that out. When you get to the end, blessed are those who persecute you. You're not going to be persecuted in heaven. You know, that's all in the here and the now. So all of these things relate to uh, everyday life. And blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Um, ironically, as I mentioned before, Poor in spirit and rich in spirit are kind of the same thing, you know. Rich toward God, but poor toward the world. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the life of God in this world. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And all of these, of course, are things that we could apply to Jesus himself. And so all of them are basically um, descriptions of Christ-likeness in his followers. Well, I was in trouble about poor in spirit. It seems to me it's uh, lacking in spiritual life or grace or something or white. I think it really means the humble yeah. or the not proud. And I always wondered why it was substituted for 
Well, it makes me think immediately of the story of the of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you know, and they the difference in their prayers, you know, I thank God I'm not like other people, and then the other one, you know, just beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. A lot, a lot of scholars look at it and think, um, well, in, in Luke's version, it's just blessed are the poor. And so they think that, well, maybe in Matthew's version, he tweaked it, trying to include other people who may not be poor physically and destitute to say, well, blessed are those who are lowly and humble, you know, whether or not they have any money in their bank account. Um, so a lot of people kind of pick up on that angle. I don't know if that's necessarily what he's getting at, but he's, he's definitely talking about those who rely on God, those who are humble, those who are not puffed up on themselves. And that sort of lays the ground for the whole treatment. Those who are humble are those who are willing to mourn and who are meek and do hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on. Okay, well...